the Adu attack with renewed ferocity. The sound was horrendous. Green tracer whacking into the fork. Mortar bombs rained down. A sheet of lead, basically. A, a real firestorm. Now, a report from one of the most important, yet least known countries in the Middle East, the Sultanate of Oman. It's been hailed as the greatest secret war in SAS history. If they'd been defeated at the Battle of Mirbat, Russian plans for a communist foothold in the Middle East could have succeeded. Welcome to Heroes Behind Headlines. I'm your host, Ralph Pizzullo. I'm very excited to introduce today's guest, Pete Winner, a legendary member of the top secret British SAS, also known as the Special Air Service, and often referred to as the Regiment. Founded during World War II, the SAS is the world's first modern special ops unit focused on counterterrorism, hostage rescue, and covert reconnaissance. It became the inspiration for special operations units around the world, including U.S. Delta Force and SEAL Team 6. British SAS operators are only deployed during the most challenging and highly classified missions. Pete has the distinction of participating in two of the most spectacular, the Iranian embassy siege in London, which played out on live television in 1980, and today's story, the legendary Battle of Mirbat. Like Black Hawk Down and the Battle of Thermopylae portrayed in the movie 300, the Battle of Mirbat pitted an overwhelming force against a brave few, in this case 400 Russian and Chinese trained rebels against a mere nine SAS operatives. The nine SAS soldiers changed the course of Middle Eastern history. Pete was among them. He's today's hero behind the headlines. Pete, welcome. And could you tell us a little bit about uh, your background growing up and how you got into special air service? Well, we have to go. We have to go back right to uh, my father's day. You know, he, my father, did um, the whole of the Second World War from se- September '39. He was on the BEF. He was at Dunkirk, Anzio, wow. right through to uh, um, Berlin. The whole, the whole five year, uh, six years, not a scratch. He's, as in his own words, he's uh, seen thousands die, but uh, some of his stories were outstanding. I just got hooked on on the army life, really, and uh, from there, well, that's all I wanted to do, um, and. Uh, come 15 years of age where which was school leaving age in those days i went straight into boy service but i took my dad's advice he said don't don't pull a trigger son learn a trade yeah. go in the royal go in the royal engineers because you get in, get in civic street you've got to have something to do so that's what i did i joined the royal royal engineers and became a um, plant operator and um, fitter engine fitter uh, and uh, from there into the regular army and then from there um, did selection into the SAS. And how big was the SAS at that point? About 300. Ballpark figure. Okay. So a small, very elite unit. Yeah. And the purpose of the unit was mainly what? Well, when I joined, the the, the purpose of 
the SS was jungle warfare. We just fought um, a jungle campaign in Borneo for the Sultan of Brunei. And uh, that, that had been a successful win for the British Army. And then heard on the grapevine that something big was going to happen in Dofa in the 70s, you know, because they were, they were getting worried that the uh, Kremlin or the Russians were going to take over the Middle East and we were going to do something about it. And we yeah. did. And so you're protecting the Sultan of Oman. And Oman, just for the, the listeners, is kind of a very strategic piece of land which leads to the Persian Gulf, correct? That is right, yeah. The world supply of oil go through the straits at the top of Oman, um, and it's not very wide at all. You, you capture those straits and you've captured the world's oil, you know. Yeah. <laughs> this and, was the situation that was developing. Right, and Oman itself was very oil-rich as well. Today, it's one of the biggest oil producers in the world. I, I don't know if that was true back in the 70s, but... It was just starting to be just developed. Starting. Okay. Just starting then. Okay. So when were you deployed to Oman, and uh, how many of, of you were there, and what was the, what was the nature of your mission? Okay, uh, well, 1970, I passed selection and went to B Squadron. There were already SAS out undercover, um, not um, identified, out in the old man, getting things going, basically, start-up. Uh, when I joined B Squadron, we uh, were just getting ready to do what they called Operation, Operation Jaguar, where we were going to put... Uh, people actually onto the hill. In, if you can imagine, Dofar is a huge, great plateau. That's why the communists, um, communist insurgents, they dominated the whole of the area. They they had communist troops up there, uh, including Russian advisors, etc., etc. Um, so the the idea of Operation Jaguar, um, October 1971, was to go up there two squadrons. The first time two squadrons of SAS had been deployed since the uh, Second World War. Two squadrons of SAS and the Sultan's Armed Forces, uh, a force of about probably five, six hundred uh, uh, guys, fully tooled up, battle order. And that's what we did, marched through the night, got up onto the plateau. And from there, from there, it was a uh, heavy sort of combat day in day, a bit like uh, Afghanistan. Helmand, that kind of stuff, every day for, um, I don't know, two, three months until we'd got a firm base on the plateau, set up a, um, a, a an area that we could uh, control. And from there, once what we call a fire base, from there, that was it. That was the start of the Dofal War. Okay. So... Uh Let's fast forward to 1972. So now yep. you're stationed down below the plateau, correct? Uh, yeah. Near, near the sea in a town called Mirbat. Is that That's correct, yeah. Okay. It was the, uh, the monsoon. Amazingly enough, we're in uh, Lawrence of Arabia territory, you know, sand dunes and beautiful sunshine. Down in Dofa, they actually have a monsoon period that no runs kidding. from... Uh, June, July, August, September, where it rains, there's um, fog, 
mist every day the, the green grass starts to grow and this is in the, the middle of arabia wow. so it's it's a unique place really a unique yeah. place yeah so usually during the monsoon nothing ever happens even the the enemy they retire to their uh, hq at um Hauf, uh, which is in the yemen and everybody just goes back to bed basically uh close the whole place down so we we came off the hill um and went to Murbat to to see out the monsoon basically ah, i see and that we, we should idea. explain that the, that the rebels were they had taken hold of Yemen, right, which was to the south. That's right, yeah. And they were coming up further north into Oman. Yeah, across the right. border, yeah. Across the they border. Were they, they had a Russian and Chinese training teams down there, which trained them up in Russian and communist tactics, and then sent them across the border to uh, do the business, you know. Oman is an oil-rich country at the mouth of the Persian Gulf. At the start of the 1970s, insurgents trained and armed by the Soviet Union and China, known as the Popular Front for the Liberation of the Arab Gulf, were supported by communist guerrillas from South Yemen and were trying to wrest power from the pro-Western Sultanate, who had ruled Oman since the 17th century. This strip of desert, situated along the southeast coast of the Arab Sea, was critically important strategically. If Oman was to fall under communist control, it would allow the Soviets and Chinese to expand into Saudi Arabia and seize their vast oil deposits. This is why the British army dispatched its most elite unit, to help train the Sultan's army and win hearts and minds of the Omani people. Nine of these soldiers were stationed in the southernmost town of Mirbat, on a narrow coastal plain sandwiched between the Jebel Ali Hills and the Arabian Sea. Do you want to do you want to name the nine guys and just give like a brief description? Well, well, just talked about Jeff. There was uh, Mike Keeley, Captain uh, Bob Bennett, again ex-infantry. There was Takavizi, Fijian, ex-infantry, Laba Laba, ex-infantry. Tax Fijian brother. There was Roger Cole, who was ex Royal Army Service Corps. Tommy Tobin. And you're all like in your early 20s? Exactly. All right, so we've had the 18th getting ready to um, leave the area. Hardly anything happened there. The, the Adu, the, the Adu is uh, Arabic for enemy. And uh, every now and again, they'd throw a few mortar bombs in just to let us know that they were out there in <laughs> right. the mist. You couldn't right. see them because of the fog. But they'd throw a few mortar bombs into the town, not many, half a dozen, just to let us know they were still there and waiting for us, you know. And that went on right up until uh, uh, July uh, 72, just before the battle. And what are you doing in the meantime? Are you training or are you just kind of hanging out? No, we're training the Furka, um, Arab tribesmen who are like um, territorial army, about 40 or 50 guys. You give them a rifle, you know, give them ammunition, and uh, they love it. You know, we, and we trained them up in tactics, and plus we were running a clinic, Hearts and Minds, 
Yeah, you got to do that. You got to win the population over. So you're doing like dental service and medical service yeah. and so and look, on. And veterinary, looking after their animals as well. You know, their cam- their camels. Yeah. And can you describe Mirbat a little bit for the viewer so that they can get a picture of it? It's a pretty primitive little village, right? Well, it was medieval when we first went there. Medieval, totally medieval. No hospital, no clinic. Um, Women were still stoned to death for adultery. Wow. Thieves had their uh, hands chopped off. Um, all this kind of stuff. Wow. Um, for murderers, it was a beheading in in the local square. Um, totally med- medieval. And a, and a town of of how many people? A couple thousand or? Mm, yeah, it was only small small place. Yeah, just a small but, place. But key strategically because of its because of where it was. Yes, yeah, it was a strategic position, yeah. Okay, so let's describe the events uh, leading up to uh, July uh, 19th of 1972, if you would, please. Um, Well, as I've just said, uh, we had the odd motor bomb lobbed in over the last previous few few months, so we got to um, July the 18th, 1972, kind of uh, what could you say holiday atmosphere about the place you know um end of tour fever had clicked in because we knew that in about a week uh, we would be back in Hereford for r and r um boy were we in for a shock <laughs> so you were expecting to leave in about a week your tour was over that's it yeah yeah, yeah. oh yeah. wow wow so that was July the 19th. Okay. Um, and you're living in a what, what they called the Bat House, right? Yeah, Bat, Bat being um, British Army training team. Uh, Bat for short, yeah. It, I've seen pictures of it. It's a pretty primitive, primitive structure. Oh, yeah, everything was primitive. Yeah, you had to Like a draw, mud, mud yeah, walls. And- that's right, yeah, yeah. yeah you've, you've seen them in uh, Afghanistan, those kind of villages, you know, in, in uh, Afghanistan. S- same thing. Basically, same thing. Um, no water. You had to collect the water from the well. Uh, no toilet. That was uh, had to be burnt in a hole, this kind of thing, you know. Right. Um, and so you're hanging out at the bot, bot house, nine of you, and you're just getting ready to leave. Oh, yeah, yeah, packing up. In the early morning of July 19th, 1972, the nine SAS operators were asleep in the British Army training team house known as the Bat House, on the northern edge of Mirbat. They were likely dreaming of home and loved ones as their tour was about to end. Since it was the middle of the monsoon season, which made troop movements difficult, none of them suspected that the communist rebels, commonly known as the Adu, were about to stage a large-scale attack, or that the resulting battle would decide the outcome of the Cold War in the Middle East. Outnumbered by over 400, to only nine. These brave men were about to become the stuff of legend, and the Battle of Mirbat would be remembered as one of the greatest military encounters in British history. July the 19th, 1972, uh, before dawn, hundreds of uh, heavily armed uh, communist shock troops moved into position. They uh, set up a, a mortar line, and a small group broke away and uh, headed for the uh, night picket or night guard on uh, Jebel Ali. So um, Jebel Ali is 
uh, still up on the plateau? No, this is on the um, only about four hundred meters away from the house. Uh, it's like a just like a pimple that the guard used up on the top of the night picket. Uh, sat up there all night keeping guard, really. Um, so the, they were up there, um, and a small group of Adu were dispatched to uh, kill them, basically. The first realisation I had that something big was going down was the sound of mortar bombs uh, exploding around the town. Um, and that was the Adu's first big mistake, opening fire with their mortar line, because it was a mega wake-up call. We all rolled out of our sleeping bags. I pulled on my shorts and uh, desert boots. Um, no Kevlar in those days. Yeah. No, no yeah. body armor. No helmets. <laughs> yeah, no helmets. Wow. And what time was this? What time in the morning was this? This was about uh, four o'clock in the morning. Four o'clock in the morning. So had they not shot the mortars, they could have just snuck right up onto you, right? And and then it would have been all over. They could have used stealth, yeah, which they should have done. But uh, I uh, raced up to my stand to position, which was on the roof of the bat house, mm-hmm. up to the uh, 5 Browning. So a 50 cal. Oh, yeah, 50 cal. Loaded it with a belt of incendiary tracer, cocked the action, and, I, and I'm thinking, uh, where's the night picket? Where are they? Why haven't they uh, been touch in touch with the on the Tokai? We had these little walkie-talkies um, called Tokais. So if you hear me talk about a Tokai, it's a walkie-talkie. Yeah. Um, why haven't they been on the uh, the Tokais giving us a warning? Where at? Why haven't they opened fire? Well, unbeknown to us, they'd all got their uh, throats slit. Wow. Um, by the the Adu. Who'd crept up on them on the top of um, how many? How many of them were there? That uh, there was your, there was eight up there of the night watch. So they were taken out. They couldn't. Well, warn eight them. of them all got the throat slit. Yeah. Um, obviously, the Adu thought they could get away with that, but unfortunately for them, the Adu, and lucky for us, um, just before the last guy got his throat slit, um, he managed to get a couple of rounds off from his assault rifle ah, and the Adu thinking the garrison had been alerted opened fire with their uh, mortar line and thank oh, goodness wow. they, thank goodness they did so that if guy they, was a hero for oh, letting yeah, off those yeah the last yeah, guy to die well, yeah, wow. yeah he, say the Adu thought uh, the garrison had been alerted and that's why they opened with their um, uh, mortar line if they'd used stealth it could have been a whole Different ball game. Did, did you hear the shots fired by the by the night watch? Uh, no, I, I didn't. I was asleep. <laughs> <laughs> wow. No, I say, I just heard the mortar bombs. Okay. In fact, that's what woke me up. You know, I started to take stock of the situation. I thought to hit us with this kind of firepower, they must they must have um, six, seven, maybe eight mortar tubes in parallel. All we had was one standard uh, British Army 81 millimetre mortar and an old uh, Second World War 25-pounder and only one man to fire it, uh, the great Fijian Laba Laba. Those one... shells are pretty heavy, right? They're... Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, huge task for one man. Yeah, and that artillery piece was not at the Bot House, correct? No, it was uh, 800 metres away at, wow. uh, at the, the fort. This is where... Uh, the uh, um, Sultan's Armed Forces uh, 
had a little HQ there. The land surrounding the British soldiers was arid and inhospitable. The town of Mirbat stood to the south, the Arabian Sea was to their backs, and the rough Jebel Ali hills rose in front of them, north and east. The closest base was British Royal Air Force headquarters in the town of Salala, 50 miles north. Pete, knowing they were desperately outnumbered, would make a quick decision to call for air support. But due to the low cloud cover typical of monsoon season, air support would prove problematic at best. The time now was about 0530 hours and uh, Mike Keeley, the, the boss, and uh, Bob Bennett, his second in command, had done a battle appreciation and realised we're going to need backup soon, big time. So uh, um, Bob Bennett ordered me down the signal shack to... Uh, uh, established comms with the HQ 40 miles away so I applied the safety catch to the 5 O'Brien and as I raced down to the si signal shot I thought um, this is war on a shoestring I mean where's the dedicated radio operator there ain't one right, that's I'm me. it yeah yeah me yeah. and yeah. now the 5 O'Browning is out of action because I had to get down the signal shack I had to get behind the radio send a signal to um uh, HQ, all done in Morse code as well. Couldn't right. use oh. couldn't couldn't use voice because voice can be manipulated. Yeah, yeah. You know, voice can be uh, um, disrupted. So you had to be pretty sharp on the Morse code. So uh, their signal strength was five. And what does strength um, five mean? Well, a top signal. So I just gave contact, contact, wait out, and raced back up to the five O Browning. You know, get behind the uh, HMG, heavy machine gun. The whole area now was alive with um, explosive activity. I couldn't believe it. There was, there was green tracer because the Yadu, the Russians, they have green tracer. We have red tracer. They have, they have green tracer. Um, green tracer was whacking into the building. There was uh, mortar bombs raining down. There was RPG, and somewhere I could hear this Spargan, Russian heavy machine gun. Oh, thudding away i mean the sound the sound was deafening and just then it was starting to get a little bit bit lighter the uh the, the fog was lifting it was starting to clear a bit and there was a shallow wadi over in the um jebel ali area and i could see these uh figures bobbing around in the wadi Wadi is like a little valley i don't know right wadi. right like a dry riverbed type yeah, of yeah, yeah yeah wadi, yeah 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 um I could see these figures bobbing around. Suddenly about 40 or 50 of them formed up in extended line and started sweeping across our front at wow. speed, heading wow. towards the fort and the uh, 25-pounder, which was obviously their um, objective. Yeah. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. It was like it was like a Hollywood uh, movie. You know, <laughs> where, where's Errol Flynn? I couldn't believe what I, it was like. A Holly, it was better than a Hollywood movie. This was reality. You know, I'd just come from uh, early 1970s UK, you know, uh, uh, Elton John, David Bowie, glam rock. Now I'm transported back to the First World War, a frontal assault by um, stormtroopers. You're back to Lawrence of Arabia. Back to Lawrence of Arabia, yeah. <laughs> so I, I looked across at um, Mike Keeley and Bob Bennett. They were studying the mortar uh, plotter board, plotting a target. So I just shout, contact, contact, enemy, 
400 meters, watch my tracer, watch my tracer. Mike Keener, no, don't on fire, don't on fire. It could be the Knight Pickett returning to the fort. I oh. thought, Knight, Knight Pickett, my ass. These guys were in killer attack mode. Yeah. Anyway, the decision was taken out of our hands. On the, on the uh, town hall roof, there was an old boy, one of the uh, mayor's Ascaris. He had a Bren gun up there and... Uh, he knew. He knew these guys weren't local. He knew they were trouble. All he could see were heads, heads on poles. So he squeezed the trigger on the, the, the Bren gun and whacked into them. Someone on the bathhouse roof shouted, uh, unleash hell and we open fire with a relish. <laughs> Unfortunately, these these guys were good, well-trained. You know, they were they were attacking with a ferocity and uh, blind dedication, which is the, the mark of Russian trained communist troops. But uh, as soon as we opened fire, they all hit the deck, uh, went to ground, uh, split up into small uh, fire teams, uh, light machine gunner, three or four riflemen and started using field craft, uh, crawling along shallow stream beds, crawling behind um, rocky outcrops. Um, to achieve their objective, which made them very difficult. That's why we couldn't hit them. You know, they didn't do a First World War, just keep running running into a into the lead. Right. They, they'd been trained to, as soon as they heard the first round go off, hit the deck, use field craft, which they did very effectively. That's why they got, that's why they got so close before we shot them all, you know. Um, so um, they, they, this this is what uh, this is what was happening at that stage of the game. So that was all. That was that was the initial assault of about forty or fifty. Don't don't forget there was a couple of hundred more hanging around, hidden in the in the big wadi over at um, uh, Jebel Ali. And this now you're at like five thirty six in the morning. This light's starting to come up. Yeah, we um it was about zero six hundred hours. Yeah, and uh, we got a message from uh, Labba that um. He'd been shot. An AK-47 round took the bottom of his chin off. And um, on the Tokai, you know, we, we each had a Tokai and we heard that one. I've been chinned, I've been chinned. But I've wrapped a shell dressing round it and carried on with the uh, the fight, luckily. Um, down in the mortar pit, helping with the mortars was Takavizi, his Fijian brother, um, he heard this and he was getting more, more worried by the minute. You know, how, what was happening over at the gun pit? How was Labba? He needed a sit rep. So he, he grabbed the uh, Tokai and it was Labba, Labba, send sit rep. Silence. Labba, send sit rep. Silence. Third time lucky, no chance. So he made a, um, on his own initiative, basically, he decided he'd run up to the, the fort, reinforce it and find out what happened himself. And, and that's another SAS secret. We can operate without orders. We don't need officers to tell us what to do. Interesting. Um, Interesting. We can uh, make our own minds up and decide what to do on the spur of the moment, and that's what he did. So he he's running what five hundred meters or how, yeah how he yeah he grabbed his uh, uh, assault rifle and wow. off he went eight hundred meters. Totally um, exposed, right? Yeah. Um, wow. Under fire. Um, 800 meters, uh, bobbing, weaving, running, bobbing, weaving, running, bobbing. Incredible. I could see this green tracer whacking over his head. I thought, any minute now, because I don't forget, I was watching this from the, the bathhouse roof, but he just kept running. Wow. And as they say, luck shines on the brave, and he made it unharmed. 
Wow, fantastic! Yeah, and you're giving them cover as much cover as you can. I, I, Trying I to look for where where the uh, light machine gun was. Yeah, again, they were they were quite good. They were well trained. The the adu they were they were using field craft to hide. You know, they were good hide their position. They were very good, uh, to be quite honest. Um, but then they were trained by the Russians and the Chinese. You know, um, so um, he made he made the gun pit. Uh, and uh, you know, jumped into the gun pit and started to help uh, um, Laba fire, fire the 25-pounder. While that was going on, back at the uh, bathhouse, Mike Keeley realised that we're going to get overrun shortly, if we're not careful, and executed. This is what would have happened, uh, overrun and executed. You know, What was their style in those days of execution? I'm afraid it was a knife to the throat, beheaded. Two of our guys were beheaded in, uh, they were captured and beheaded in, in the Yemen in 1964. So that was in the back of your head. Oh, yeah. We knew that was going to happen to us as well. Um, standard procedure. So um, Mike Keeley realized we we're going to get overrun and executed. So Bob ordered me down the signal shack, called for Star Trek. Star Trek was the code for uh, um, airstrike. So I raced out into the... Um, uh, signal shack got behind the rate reach for the code books unfortunately everything in dofa had to be coded because just off the coast of um oman on the island of uh, sakutra there was a russian kgb listening post wow. so all messages had to be uh coded uh, i decided there and then fuck it you know there and then throw the rule book out the window um, I need to be immediate, you know, no time for, for codes, you know. Um, I even considered sending a, a flash signal, but that's reserved for nuclear strike imminent. <laughs> so I thought I better not send a flash signal. That might really panic them. That'll so, wake uh, them up in London, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah that would have wake, woken them up in London. Or, uh, so I decided next one down, which is up immediate. So I just gave it to... Uh, up immediate, up immediate, uh, situation serious, um, under heavy attack, send Star Trek, under heavy attack, send Star Trek, under over and over again. Back at the back at the gun pit, uh, um, Tack could see Labba firing a 25-pounder on his own. Wow. Um, so he just shouts in Fiji, and where's your number two? Where's where's the Omani gunner? Where's the Dofaris? And... Um, Labber shouts back in Fiji and uh, they surrendered. They've run up the white flag. They've locked themselves in the, um, the foot. They ain't coming out. The situation was desperate. The Adu kept creeping closer and closer, keeping up a steady blaze of AK-47, mortar, and machine gun fire. Meanwhile, the SAS operators were running low on ammo and supplies to the point that Pete was using butter to lubricate the 50 cal machine gun. Not helping matters was the fact that the 20 or more of the Sultan's soldiers had locked themselves in the fort behind the 25-pounder and refused to come out and fight. The SAS team was on their own. So, Tuck, this is not good. This is not good. I'm going to have to rift these guys. I'm going to have to, I'm going to, have to kick ass, and that's what he did. Under fire, I mean, these guys were getting so close now. The, they were a grenade throwing range. Um, it, so they were within what, 100 meters or, or less? 
probably about at that stage about a hundred meters or so yeah uh under fire he ran to the 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 door of the fort started hammering it come out you bastards come on out <laughs> come on out you cowards anyway one he managed to get one guy to the door uh they unlocked the door and wallied uh, calvin who was the omani gunner um tack then said follow me so tack ran and jumped calvin followed him but immediately, immediately was shot in the stomach. So oh, he was God. out. He was out of the picture anyway. Uh, it didn't kill him, but um, he was out of the picture. So he went. Wow. Down. So the one guy who he urges to come out of the fort gets immediately gets shot. Yeah, he, he immediately got so shot. So that's like uh, total yeah. disincentive for the other ones to, to, they, yeah, to, to that's join right, yeah. in. Right. Yeah, one other did come out, but he jumped straight into the uh, ammo bunker, which was over on the um, over on the left. Um, so that was a the situation there. So you called in for the air air support. Well, that's right. Yeah, it was it was about uh, seven o'clock now in the morning. The, the battle had been raging for about uh, three hours now, and I'm thinking, um, you know, where's Star Trek? You know, it must be over thirty minutes ago that uh, I called for Star Trek. Where we gotta get the jets in, or else we're gonna get overrun and we're gonna get executed. And then, of course, I looked up at the cloud-based dinner and it was down to about 100... Because it was a monsoon. Yeah. The cloud base was um, down to about 150 feet. And I guess that's why they had to pick that morning. They must have read, read the uh, weather report right, and realised right. it was going to be heavy, heavy ah. mist that morning. Jets won't fly. I thought... Oh, we're screwed. The jets won't fly uh, under 150 feet. They are too dangerous. They, they attract um, ground fire, you know, so we're not going to get the jets. This is this is going to literally be a, a fight to the death. And then, incredibly, about 30 minutes later, a, a miracle occurred that the, 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 the mist suddenly kind of lifted to about 350 feet. I uh -huh. thought, yeah, yeah, we could be in with a chance here. So applied the safety catch to the five, raced down to the... Uh, uh, five O Browning yet again got down and sent um, sent a wet rep, what they call a wet rep weather report. Sent a wet rep in clear, you know, alpha uh, uh, cloud base, seven hundred meters. Exaggerate, <laughs> exaggerate, exaggerate, because <laughs> it was all, it was only three about three fifty. Anyway, it seemed to do the trick. Was um, about uh, I don't know um, about fifteen minutes later. Two jets suddenly broke through the cloud wow. over Murbat uh, Bay, wheeling and diving, and they did a strafing run up the uh, perimeter wire. Wow! Using uh, rocket and cannon, they didn't last long. They didn't last long. First jet was shot through the uh, tail with Spargan, heavy machine gun from. Was they they what they did? They mounted a Spargan on the top of Jebel Ali when they ah. killed the um, the night guard. Right. They then put a Spargan up there, you know. Uh, and so good good place to put a heavy machine gun you know dominate the area that was it we were now and these uh, jets are uh, uh one pilot just one man yeah one jets. man there they were a ripoff really they were str what they call strike master they rebranded them they were so cheap to the sultan they were they were jet trainers yeah. In, in okay. UK. They were okay. used for training pilots, okay. you know. Right. They were, but they were flogged off cheap to the Sultan. 
Relief from the two Strike Master light attack jets was short-lived. One was hit by ground fire and had a limp back to base. Shortly after that, the second ran out of ammunition and had to return to Salala to resupply. Now the tired, injured SAS operator's situation was growing increasingly desperate. The Adu kept coming at them in waves, from multiple directions, inching closer and closer until Pete, Tok, and the others resorted to firing at them point blank. The Brits refused to give up, proving in Pete's words that luck shines on the brave. As the last remaining jet disappears into cloud, his uh, ordinance totally uh, expended, um, they had to attack with renewed ferocity. I mean, uh, you know, you, the sound was horrendous. Green Tracer whacking into the fort. Green Tracer whacking, sparking off the 25-pounder. Um, motor bombs rained down. Uh, you know, a sheet of lead, basically. Uh, wow. A real firestorm. And it was round about this time that Tack got hit. Um, he, uh, he took an AK-47 round that lodged millimetres from his spine uh, and also around creased his skull, you know, creased across his skull. Wow. Um, you know, a quarter of an inch lower, he would have got a third eye. He wouldn't be sat here now or in an eighth of an inch lower. So, you know, he was quite VSI, as we say, very seriously injured. So with, with TAC VSI and Labba already weak from loss of blood from the um, the wound on his chin. Yeah. They could no longer um, fire the 25-pounder, so the big the big gun uh, fell silent. Um, wow. Labba, Labba then uh, reached for his uh, assault rifle, but he's thinking, I need something better than this. I need something um, that I can fire from behind the sandbags and not put, not put my head up because the, these guys, they, had, they were going for headshots. They were definitely going for headshots. Um, he said, I need some acting fire from behind the sandbags, you know. And then he suddenly remembered over in the ammo bunker, there was a 60 millimeter mini, mini mortar, uh -huh. small handheld five by one man. It's an, an American weapon, you know, very handy for CQB work, close quarter close quarter battle work and and, and, and uh, Labba thought that's what I need that's the equalizer I can fire that and keep my head down at the same time so right just poke it above the sandbags and fire yeah 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 yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah. keep his head down and so uh, that's what he did he, he began to crawl towards the the ammo bunker which was about I don't know 10 feet 12 feet away but as soon as he broke cover from the armored shield of the 25 pounder cut down immediately ak-47 oh, wow. round sliced uh, straight through his um through his neck oh, uh, kill, killed him instantly uh the, the great fijian was gone as pete mentioned the bond between the two fijians and the sas squadron talayasi laba laba known as laba and sekonaya takavesi known as tak was very close in a stroke of luck, or you could call it cosmic resonance, Tok just happened to drop by Pete's house while we were recording this podcast. Pete was as surprised as I was. Who better than Tok to describe the heroics of his Fijian brother-in-arms, Laba? Here's Tok. So I went up. I ran from there to the top, and uh, I went in. I ran straight into the pit where Lamba was. And I said, the first thing I said, Where's the fucking Omanegunners? 
And these are the people who are supposed to be running the gun. Say so they're not here. I say I'm gonna fucking kick them out of the at the fort. So Lamba agreed. So because you know there's only two of us there, and we're almost surrounded. By this time, the enemy are there, but maybe 50 meters away. Yeah. Wow. So I went. I say Lamba, I'm gonna get these two fucking gunners out. It took me about what 10 minutes. I was kicking the door in, knocking the door for them to open the gate. I speak to them in Arabic. I say, quick, open the door. And at the same time, I was kicking the door. I was lucky I didn't get shot, okay? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Uh, Bullets the, flying the, all over your head, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, all over the place. So somehow they opened the door. And I told, I, just, I swore to them in Arabic, get your fucking ass up here. <laughs> so the two of them, these are the two gunners who are supposed to be running the gun. Yeah, yeah. I said, what are you doing there? You've been hiding there. Get your fucking ass up here. So from there, they followed me. I said, come on, let's run and, and, and duck and dive. So from, from, from the fort to the gun pit, maybe five or 10 meters away. Okay. So we dodged and run. But I was lucky. I didn't fucking shot. He got shot, though, in the stomach. Okay. Wow. So I could not stop. And if I stopped, I'd been dead, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So you just had to leave him there, huh? I said, I couldn't do anything. Then a guy behind me, another guy, another small guy, gunner, he followed me. He ran across. And I went straight and helped Lumber out. But this guy knew the safest place was to go into ammunition bunker. Yeah. And hide there. And yeah. hide there. So it goes from one hiding spot to the other. Yeah. And and, and they were, I, I think the, the, the right way, shitting themselves, okay? So I ran back to the gun pit with Lumber. The, the guy, Walid, uh, who, who sort of lay there, I couldn't do anything. I knew if I'd stopped, I'd been dead, you know? So I went straight in, jumped in ammunition to the gun pit and helped Lumber out. We waited and waited and, you know, I mean, then I got shot. Then Lamba and I were discussing in Fiji and joking to him in Fiji. And I said, look, Lamba, keep your ass down, you know, keep your head down all the time. And he was doing the same to me. He's yeah. he's firing the 50. The... Panda, yeah, 50 Panda. So by this time I went and helped him out, okay? Yeah, put the charges in, um, gave it to Lamba. Lamba ran it in with a, with, a, with a stick, push it in, okay? Then suddenly I had this... Um, Crack and thumb. Crack and thumb means the bullet is right above you, okay? And I looked, Lumber went across trying to pick up the 60 millimeter American mortar, which is one of the most accurate ones, okay? And I looked straight away and I saw this bullet, okay? My eyes straight away look at Lumber and I saw the bullet land on his neck. Oh my God. And I saw he, he died straight away. And to me, it was the saddest part of my life. Yeah, this is your best friend. Yeah, and that's what happened. Yeah, sorry. Um, that's okay. I'm, it must have been horrible, horrible experience. By then, okay, it made me more determined, more determined this time. And I was already been shot, um, lying in there, okay. And our problem was, we had the what I had the SLR, and I was running out of ammunition. So when I ran from the from the from where Pit One was, where our position was, to the hill, okay. I took about five or six set of bandoliers, about 300 rounds. Eh? So by the time I got there, firing all this now, I was running out of ammunition. Wow. But luckily, there was a, a guy, Omani Ghana, who is about five yards away from me in a gun pit. This is I the say, guy who's hiding. Yeah. I said, look, give me some of the ammunition. They've got FN rifle. They take 7.62, but the magazine will not fit my rifle. So I have to unload it first, reload it onto my weapon before I fire it, okay? So all this time, I, I only I can only take about four, five, five seconds okay, to load it up, fire, then again, unload the magazines from the other one, 
and reload it before I fire again, okay? It's been going on for, for ages, okay? Because I didn't have any choice. You know, my arm was, one of my arm was dead already. And you're shooting with the other arm? Yeah, one arm, left? yeah. Yeah. But I said, I, by this time, I was more determined. And I, and, and I, no way that I ever, I was going to, you know, surrender or anything. It never entered my head, you know? I was more determined than when Lamba died. And that was I, the, I would imagine you'd be uh, angry. No, no. By this time, I was, I was patient. And I knew what happened, and I respect that Lumbus took the bullet, okay? And I took one too. And I thought, well, the, the only thing to do is to fight on and never give up. And that's why we can continue, eh? Okay, Lumbus is already dead on the side. You know, yeah. he, I, was, I, I was there, and the Arab, other Arab was um, in the gun pit. Not in the gun pit, in the ammunition bunker. The other one was lying on the side of the fort. So we were sort of a almost been surrounded and uh, we were very lucky had the enemy known that how many as only a few of us there two or three of us there they would just stand up and advance forward and take a lot of us out but they didn't they thought there's more of us there which was really good okay we were lucky that day right and you're keeping up the fire continually yeah, I mean, and keeping up yeah you know as much as i can you know so and we heard on the radio that uh, mike keeler coming up with tommy tobin okay so I was expecting them. Then by this time, the the what the the gunfire towards uh, the twenty five pound was very severe, and you could hear it whistling past and you know over me and under me on my left on my right. So I can hear they were they were shouting. Okay, they were coming running forward to towards our gun pit. So Tommy Tobin was in front. My kill was followed about three or four yards behind him. So Tommy knew. He thought the safest place was to jump inside the, our gun pit. So as he sort of took over and jumped, he landed on the, on the, on the, the sandbags. And the bullet, I think about two or three bullets, caught, caught his face, his jaw, so which blew him apart. Oh, my God. And I couldn't do anything. So Laba's already dead. Tommy Tobin's face wounded, you know? His face, I could see his face now, you know? So was, now you've in, got, you're, you're wounded, Tommy's wounded, Lamba is dead, and you're still on your own with the with the twenty five pounder. Yeah, yeah, I was still firing the gun. Yeah, no, I was still firing the the SLR, which means I got unloaded from the FN, reloaded on my magazine, and do the same again, over and over again. Didn't have any choice. That's the only way to. You couldn't even be automatic or semi-automatic. It's basically no, 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 ma uh, yeah. manually feeding the bullets. No, no, yes, one, two, three, four, quickly. Coin my weapon, cock it, fire it, and I go again. Empty the other one, reload, and fire. Wow, all of this while injured in the shoulder, a bullet yeah. through your shoulder. Yeah. Wow. You know, luckily, they didn't even know how many of us was there. They thought there still quite a few of us. They could have just stand up and, and walk straight up, you know, without doing anything. Right, right, because how are you going to stop them? By this time, they started lobbing grenades at us, okay? Grenades firing and moving. But luckily, they overcome by, by what we did. And also the firepower from the Fiber Brown and Pete Warren and them. And also other people from around the villages, okay? And some, I think some of the the the, um, the, so the rounds came up there too, trying oh, to protect really? us. Some people yeah. from the villages yeah. started to fire yeah. back. Yeah, yeah. So this is in the crux of the battle, and uh, it went on for uh, a good a good half an hour or long, a lot longer. Unbelievable. And are you and, running on adrenaline, or are you feeling weaker from the loss of blood? No, no, no. I'm okay. You know, I, I when I got shot for about five seconds, I I just crunched like a baby. Okay. And and I, I was just shocked. And straight on my head, I thought, 
What the fuck am I going to do? I've just bought a new house in the UK. How the fuck? I'm not serious. How the fuck I'm going to pay for my mortgage? That's amazing. But that's the truth. That's amazing. But that's the truth. But anyway, you know, the enemy didn't stop. It's still, still coming. Pete, were you able to follow this from the bot house? Did, did you know what was going on? No, not really. It was still, because it was a monsoon, the, the, the visibility wasn't very good. You know, it's still a lot of mist about. Don't forget, we were occupied looking the other of way. Course, had, of course, the, the of enemy course. running across the uh, yeah, across yeah. the plain. You know, that's what, we, what that's what I was looking at. You know, I, I'd lost track of what was going on up at the gun pit. Right. That was a situation, and all that was left then, of course, I was tacked, um, you know, with this round lodge millimeters from his spine, and firing an SLR, you know, the self-loading rifle. Yeah, hell of a kick, and he had to fire that with his with his one of his arms was out of action, propped up against the sandbags. Wow. So that was a situation that we were in, and then back at the the bat house, uh, Mike Keeley uh, realized that we're on the verge of being overrun. He couldn't see what was going on. He knew that the 25 pounder had stopped firing. He knew there was little activity within the um, the gun pit, but he also knew that the Adu were crawling closer and closer to achieving their objective. So he thought, I, I need to find out what's going on over there. I need a sit rep. So he right. grabbed the tokai and it was laba laba, send sit rep, silence. Tack, tack, send sit rep, silence. Third time lucky, no chance. So he made a personal decision that he would run up to the fort, reinforce it and find out what was happening himself. And uh, he asked for volunteers. So me and Bob Bennett, we stepped forward. Uh, they told Bob, you can't go, you're... Uh, uh, controlling the mortars. Pete, you can't go. You're controlling the radio. So he took Tommy Tobin, who was one of the best um, medics in B Squadron at the time. He'd just done the hospital attachment down in uh, A&E at uh, Oxford. So he was up to speed with the uh, trauma. And he also he also had this top-of-the-range medical pack with something like three dozen threats of morphine. Broke wow. every rule in the book. You're only supposed to have about <laughs> half a dozen. I don't know where he got those from, but don't forget, subterfuge is an, uh, is an SAS skill. Yes. <laughs> so that was it. The decision was taken. Um, they grabbed their assault rifles and off they went out of the um, front door of the bat house, uh, 800 metres, mad, mad dash. Pepper potting forward, one man running, one man covering, one man running, one man covering. And I, I was watching them again. I could see the tracer cracking over there. I thought, any minute now, any minute, you know, they 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 more or less ran through a blizzard of green tracer, but a very, very serious close quarter battle then developed, you know, with the Adu closing to uh, grenade throwing range. And they started lobbing grenades, right? One grenade landed near attack didn't explode another grenade landed near the the ammo bunker rolled over the parapet of the the ammo and landed at um mike keely's feet didn't explode oh my god and that was the adu's big big mistake um the seven P's, prior planning and preparation prevents piss poor performance, you know, right, right, service, right. serviceability of kit and equipment. Because it was, you see, because it was the monsoon, uh, everything got damp. Every day ah. was damp and drizzly. Fuses got got damp. And the, the, the grenade, they never bothered to change their grenade fuses. They'd uh, had them in there probably for weeks, you know, getting into position, you know. And 
and the fuses on the the grenades were were damp so wow. the the grenades weren't going off um that one that landed near tack if that had gone off that would have definitely killed tack and the one the one that landed at mike keely's feet definitely would have killed mike keely um uh so they would have then overrun the position and uh, taken out the um the, taken out the, the uh, 25 yeah. pounder the old 25 pound artillery piece was critical Tak and the others knew that if it fell into the adu's hands they would use it to level the bad house and the battle would be over laba not only operated the 25 pound gun single-handedly but also gave his life to protect it Fifty years after the battle, you can still hear the emotion in Tak's voice. Without Laba's heroics, none of them would have survived. Once they had the 25 pound, they could have turned it onto the uh, the bat house, and at 800 meters, they would have flattened. They would have flattened the bat house, flattened me. I wouldn't have been sat here. Tak wouldn't have been well. Tak would have been killed with the uh, the grenade uh, fragments. Um, and we did hear later from a interrogation of a, a prisoner of war that they had a special team trained up to fire the 25 pounder trained trained by a ex corporal from the Omani artillery who defected to the uh, communist corps. So, so they were prepared. They were, they were ready. Prepared. Oh, they were ready. They thought they were going to get that gun and they were going to flap. Once they had the gun, that would have been game over basically yeah they would have flattened us you know um so uh, luckily luckily uh, those grenades didn't go off you know wow that, what that, a miracle uh, man wow yeah, that 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 probably that you know they lost the battle through the planning and preparation there's seven P's, Ralph. <laughs> Prior planning and preparation prevents piss poor performance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing. Drummed into you, drummed into you in training. Obviously, the the Russians and the Chinese haven't uh, haven't heard that one. So uh, now we're what? Like it's into the morning now, right? Did yeah, we yeah. We're still waiting for the jets again. Don't forget. Um, so they've, they've gone back to to refuel. Uh, I mean, at this stage of the game. The situation has now gone from uh, serious to desperate. We were only um, we were down to only six fully fit fighting men, and the five O Brownies out of action because I'm down in the signal shack. Call it for Star Trek situation desperate. Send Star Trek situation desperate. Send Star Trek over and over again until finally so you have to keep running back downstairs to, to that's send right out yeah the, yeah up, to send down, out the comms that's yeah. What, yeah i used to run up fire off a belt of uh, five o browning back down to the radio send reinforcements situation desperate back up oh, back was the phone you know sas throw them in at the deep end they'll <laughs> they'll carry the gun they'll carry the uh, they, they carry the day you know yeah 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 Fantastic. Um, there you Fantastic. go. That's how they think we are. They think we're all supermen, you know. But um, uh, so that was it. Situation desperate said, and eventually um, RAF Salala sparked up, and uh, Wing Commander uh, Bill Stoker, in charge of the Sultan's jets, um, decided to la launch two more strike masters. And uh, about just after mid morning, two jets suddenly burst through the. Um, clouds over uh, Murbat Bay um, wheeling and diving 
and uh, did a strafing run up the um, uh, Perimeter Y using Rocket and Cannon. Bill Stoker, lead jet coming in low, low, very fast, uh, using the deafening sound of his jet. That must have been a welcome sight, huh? Yeah, to try wow. and panic. He skimmed over the top of them, 100 metres. <laughs> broke, broke every rule in the book, you know. And, of course, on the fourth pass, um, he attracted ground fire, AK-47, Spargan from Jebel Ali, and uh, his jet was riddled. 12.7 Spargan straight through the fuel fuel tank. Oh, so no. he had to um, bank uh, left off, left over the fort, disappeared into a cloud and uh, limped back to RAF Salal and did an emergency line. So that was it. Back down to one jet again. And the Adu were now in a position to put in the final assault. What they'd done in the dead ground they, they crawled through the perimeter wire in the dead ground, hidden by the fort, and crawled up to their final assault positions, which was the two, the two corners uh, of the fort, um, right and left of arc, only feet away from the gun position, only feet away from the ammo bunker. And they were about to put in their final assault. Mike Keeley then realised that um, their going to be we're going to be over overrun executed probably so he made the decision that would um that would win him the uh, dso the distinguished service order he grabbed the tokai and it was fuzz fuzz fire mission one mortar i want rounds down on my position i want you to frag my position now fuzz wow. was like what what <laughs> yes fuzz, shoot at me fire, yeah fire, yeah fire mission one one mortar rounds down along the primitive wire corner of the fort around the ammo bunker around the uh compit uh rapid fire now well Buzz, being one of the finest mortar men of his uh, generation, realised how dangerous this was going to be. 800 metres, line of sight, off the tripod, um, high angle shoot. I mean, one wobble. Yeah, one and you land right in the bunker. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Blue on blue, blue on blue. Um, Fuzz took a deep breath, grabbed the first um, mortar bomb and started feeding the beast. Fuzz, Fuzz put down a rain of steel along the... Primitive wire along the um, gun pit, the ammo bunker, put a, a rain of steel down. And so, with the combination of Fuzzy's superb mortar fire control uh, and the, the last yes. remaining jet, um, this finally broke the Adu attack. Wow. You could, he you could hear the sound of gunfire dying down. You could hear the um, cacophony of sound drifting away. I thought, yeah, this is it. We're going to get a result. This is good. We're going to get a result. The Adu realise it's a lost cause. The Adu are on the on the uh, back foot. Real elation. Better than winning the World Cup. <laughs> <laughs> didn't last lot. Didn't last long though, did it? I was just watching the last remaining jet. Um, his ordnance totally expending. A race away into the distance, waggling his wings in a in a victory roll when I, when I saw these figures on the uh, skyline um, heading towards uh, Murbat at speed. I thought, who are those guys? Um, who are they? I thought, can't be. They had to have regrouped. They're putting in a counter-attack and I'm down to my last box of 5-0 Browning. Oh my God. I thought 
I'm not finished yet. Russian troops or Russian trained troops, communist troops, do not make decisions. They refer upwards. I thought, if I can take the officer out, they'll be like headless chickens. Uh, they won't know what to do next, which way to go. And most of the leaders, they all wore these big silver whistles around ah. the neck. Ah, so you uh, could spot to, to donate officer or senior NCO. So that was what I was going to look for, the whistle. And uh, take that guy out with the fire. I had the, the range with the 5-0 Browning. And I take the officer out. I reached for the binos. I was just about to uh, scan the extended line looking for the officer when suddenly they all disappeared down this, um, uh, this wadi that ran down to the coast. Almost immediately, this this huge amount of fire erupted. I thought, I thought, who's firing at who? And I could see um, red tracer mixed with the green. I thought they had they had who don't have um, uh, red tracer. They only have green. What's going on? It was then that the uh, the radio in the the bathhouse burst into life, and it was bathhouse, bathhouse. Uh, this is G Squadron. Contact, contact. You are totally surrounded. You are being outflanked um, south of the town. Um, we are advancing to, to contact. Wait out, G Squadron. Reinforcements. Yeah, G Squadron reinforcements. They'd only been in the place about 24 hours. They're actually on the range fixing their weapons when they got the call. It's wow. all going down at Merba. So they jumped on the chop and they were choppered in to south of the That was them coming over the hill which we thought was the uh, the Adu reinforcements, but in fact was G-Squadron. Um, <laughs> saved the day. I guess so. Yeah. Wow. What, is, what a, what a sigh thought, of relief, uh, man. Now, now we're going to get a result. There's no way the Adu can beat a full squadron of SAS. Nobody beats a full squadron of the SAS. <laughs> that, includes, that includes the Russian and the Chinese. The Battle of Murbat was over. The enemy were in... Uh, we're in full retreat. Despite overwhelming odds, the SAS team fought off over 400 Adu rebels for more than six hours. It was a resounding victory and a huge blow to the morale of communist forces in the Middle East. Sadly, the Brits lost brave Sergeant Talayasi Labalaba and medic Tommy Tobin in the process. Others, including Tak, were severely injured, but managed to survive. 46 years later, in 2018, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, Duke and Duchess of Sussex, traveled to the island of Fiji to dedicate a statue to Laba Laba in honor of his heroism at the Battle of Merbat. Pete and Tak were there to pay an emotional tribute to their fallen brother-in-arms. The 25-pound gun that Laba operated now sits on display in the Royal Artillery Museum. We thank Sergeant Laba Laba and the entire SAS team for their bravery, and especially Pete and Tak for joining us. They're today's heroes behind the headlines. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Ralph Pizzullo. If you want to hear more stories like this, don't forget to subscribe and tune in next time to Heroes Behind Headlines. (laughs) 